Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grid. I'm super excited to invite Nate Solon. He is a chess master, a data scientist, a writer. He's actually author of a new book, How to Evaluate Like a Grandmaster, and also the popular blog, Zwischenzug. This is The Grid, so it should be no surprise to you that he's also a poker player. In fact, he played professionally for seven years. And today, Nate is going to bring us a hand from a private game which ties into a lot of themes that people are talking about today in both chess and poker. Nate, thanks for coming. Hey, thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think and you're obviously you're in the chess world. So I had to remind myself that this was the, the grid, the poker podcast. But we have a lot of listeners who like chess, especially kind of your perspective on chess, which is like really data oriented and so much about the philosophy of learning. I feel like that's really appealing to poker players. So everybody should check out and sell to Nate's blog that I mentioned in the beginning, as I'm sure it'll be really useful for you. But that said, let's jump into the hand. Yeah. You were playing a private game, right? And tell us like how you got invited to this game. Yeah. So this was pretty early on in my poker career. I started out playing online, but but I started to play a little bit of live poker too. So this would have been pretty early on in this. It was a private game. It was, you know, I was living in Michigan at the time. If I remember correctly, it was in like a bar, like a back room of a bar, something like that. Maybe in, in Howell, Michigan, like like some sort of small town in Michigan. And uh, I, w- I went with a friend who had sort of made some connection with a guy who ran this game. So that's how we got into it. It was, it would not have been like very high stakes, like, you know, so it was no limit, but I don't remember exactly. I mean, maybe we're talking about like one, two or two, five, not like a huge game. I think this was the first time we had we had played in this game and, and like I was pretty new to live poker in general. So I probably was like kind of out of my comfort zone here. So backroom bar in Michigan. By the way, Michigan's one of the states that has uh regulated online poker or poker stars has I know if if I had if I had hung around for a while, maybe maybe I'd be in a good spot right now. But uh, <laughs> I'm in Nebraska now where there is actually no casinos at all, even in Nebraska. Were you drinking during this bar game? I don't think I was. I mean, you know, maybe I had had like one beer, but like, I don't think I was drunk. You know, I was in the game and and focused. And now let's get into the hand. You were playing, this hand was against a friend? Yeah, so it was 
my my friend had sort of got us into this game and you know we we drove over there together so it was like me and this other young guy and then the rest of the game was was like these older guys that played in this game regularly um so it was like a pretty casual game i think i think the other guys probably knew each other we were sort of new that was already part of the dynamic so my friend opens in in middle position i call in the big blind with pocket fours and the flop comes like queen 10 four rainbow so I flop bottom. This is like the dream and no limit, right? This is what, this is what, this is what I was. You're always hoping for. At least I was hoping for. Back this, this is how I thought about no limit back in the day. I think it's gotten more advanced. But you know, I check key continuation bets. I check raise. You know, about three x, like whatever was like a normal sizing for me at the time. He calls. Then the turn was like something like a seven. So I definitely remember like you know feeling really good about where I was at. So it was like I had a set. It was this dry board. The turn didn't like introduce a lot of like draws or anything. So I just, I bet again, like setting up the river shove, he calls. The river is another brick, like a deuce or something. I'm kind of trying, this is like over 10 years ago. So I'm kind of trying, you know, the exact cards I don't remember, but I definitely remember like feeling got, like I got like a clean run out because, you know, like when you're barreling with a set and like a backdoor flush comes in or something, you have that decision of, do you keep betting or slow down? And that decision would definitely have made me uncomfortable at that time. So I remember feeling like, okay, I got a clean run out. I can keep going for value. So I go all in. He thinks for like a little while, but not too long and calls. And like I announce set and like flip over my cards, but I had actually had misread my hand. So I had pocketed threes. So I didn't have bottom set. I had like, you know, an under pair and he called down with like Kings, you know, he had an over pair. The reason I'm bringing up this hand now is like, as soon as this happened, this other guy in the game goes, Hey, these guys are cheating. Like I've been watching them. They've been passing signals. So like this guy just accuses us of cheating and everyone at the table gets really tense. It was really weird for a lot of reasons. Like one, we're sort of the outsiders in this game. Like I haven't played that much live poker. I'm already like sort of feeling uncomfortable. Two, it like, it makes no sense actually, because obviously if you were cheating with like a confederate, the whole point would be to take money from other people, right? But we were the only two ones in the hand. His whole accusation didn't make any sense at all. But I think in the in this game where like people were not very experienced poker players, I don't know if people necessarily understood that. And also the fact that I had misread my hand, I mean, it's not clear how that would be connected to cheating, but it definitely made, like it made me, the whole situation was already weird. And I looked like I certainly had done something strange it was all in all, just everyone was very uncomfortable. Before this hand, were you and your friend up a lot of money? I definitely don't remember it as though like, you know, we were just like crushing and like taking all of these guys money or something like Matt Damon in like rounders where they're playing in like the police game or whatever. I don't remember it like that. So like maybe I was up a little, but it, was, it wasn't like we were just like cleaning up and everyone was was pissed off or anything. So your your cheating strategy of uh, misreading your hands wasn't wasn't winning you that many big blinds. Not as effective as as Robbie's. Yeah. So basically, the the whole thing made no sense, which I actually think is a connection to to both this like chess cheating scandal and the poker one of people trying to make sense of the situation by looking for what what's the pers perspective, what's the assumption where this makes sense. But the thing is, in real life, things happen that make no sense. And people do things that make no sense all the time in poker. So you can't necessarily sort of unravel the situation in that way. 
The interesting thing here is this kind of idea that misreading your hand is a sign of cheating. And I actually kind of understand why like people would think that that's a sign. Of course, one, of course, you would never want to like accuse somebody of cheating just because they misread her hand. But I can kind of understand that because maybe they think that there's some kind of marked cars or signaling that's like distracting you. So you don't even notice what your hand is because you're so focused on cheating. Would that be it? It could be. And actually, this is so th this hand is the only time in my poker career that I was ever accused of cheating. But I did actually misread my hand fairly often, like probably too often. I don't know if people thought I was cheating, but I, I think people often thought I was like angling or something because, you know, like I don't hide the fact that that I was like a pro, you know, playing for money. I think in poker and in chess, like I'm good on the big picture strategy, but I can be a little flaky on the details. So especially once I started playing PLO, I would misread my hand like kind of too often. Yeah, I think people thought it was some sort of act, but no, I, I really just misremember my hand sometimes. That makes some sense that you could like flip over your hand and say, yeah, flush or set. And people could think you're angling if you don't actually have that hand because you're trying to get them to like muck their cards. Yeah. I can understand that. Although it's so hard to act well if you're not good at it. It's usually you can kind of tell if somebody's genuine there. In any case, in this particular hand, they accuse you of cheating, which seems pretty crazy considering you weren't up that much and that this hand was against your friend. But somehow the fact that you misread your hand just triggered this guy, it sounds like. I wonder if he got and cheated in the past and that was like the smoking gun. Yeah. That's what happens with people a lot. Like they get cheated once. Like if you see Doug Polk's videos about the Robbie J. Liu hand against Gerard Edelstein, he's very fixated on the min raising because he was cheated in the past in that way. And I do think that when somebody is cheated, whatever happened during that cheating can be something that they're always looking for, whether it's a game or relationships or, or you know, just fraud. Yeah, like almost like PTSD, like for the exact circumstances of what happened to them. So what happened after did you guys leave? The guy who ran the game talked to us away from the table and like, Basically, he mostly sided with us, like, because I think it was pretty clear that this guy's accusation didn't really make a lot of sense. So he was kind of like, yeah, like, this guy's kind of out of line. I don't, I don't think you guys are cheating. So like, we were fine. I don't, I don't know if we continued playing after that. But like, you know, it wasn't like they like beat us up or anything. Like we were able to like, leave the game with our money. I think the guy, one thing you see in poker and chess as well people who are good at sort of the culture of the game, but are not good at the competitive side of the game. And if I remember right, this was kind of my read on this guy who accused us is like, he probably played more poker than a lot of people in that game, but, you know, clearly wasn't exactly thinking about it in a way that made sense. And, you know, I, I think you see this in a lot of poker rooms of like the guy who's always in the poker room and has sort of been around and knows, you know, knows how to shuffle the chips and is like good at the table talk, but like, if you kind of watch how he's playing his hands, it doesn't it doesn't make a ton of sense. And there's, of course, the opposite players, too, who are like super clumsy with their chips and their mannerisms, but actually are making um, strong plays. That was more like me. I mean, hopefully, but like I was never like I never had a table presence where people were scared of me or intimidated by me of anything. But, you know, obviously I was, I was playing for a living, so I had a good win rate in, in most of the games I was playing in. Yeah, I do think in general, in poker, of course, it is good to have a intimidating table presence on average because it'll make people play fewer hands against you and fold more, which is obviously profitable. I think 
that is useful to develop. Whereas in chess, it could be marginally useful as well, but probably less so. So I've actually played poker with Garrett and chess with Hans. So I have like a little bit of a connection to, to both of these scandals. But speaking of of intimidating table presence, I, I just played one session with Garrett. I think it was at Commerce in LA. And the only hand I can remember is like, he opened, I three bet with ace king, he four bet, like I re somehow I had gotten deep. So I was able to re-raise and not be all in. And he sort of studied me for a while and um, ended up folding. But I remember afterwards, I was talking to the hand with a friend and, and they said like, you know, why didn't you just call the four bet? Like, did you really want to stack off with ace king? And I was like, like, honestly, I don't know. Like, like Garrett just stared me down. And I like blacked out. <laughs> like, I, didn't, I didn't have a plan in the hand. So in that sense, I sympathize with Robbie. Like I did like I did not have like a thought process behind how I was playing that hand. Ah, because you felt like he was really intimidating. Well, I think so. Just because just because I had like like afterwards, I had no rational explanation for this decision. It was just like I went into like lizard brain and I guess, you know, my default was to play ace king aggressively but you know like in no in no limit obviously ace king is a good hand but like if you're deep it's not necessarily a hand you should be thrilled to um stack off with preflop in in every situation later i read maybe i watched a video by him or read a blog post by him or something where he was talking about you know his strategy in live poker and you know part of it is if there are players he wants to target in the blind so open like very 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 aggressively so he mentioned in this video the correct strategy for the players to his left would be to like three bet him relentlessly in that situation. So in that sense, I probably played the hand correctly. But I mean, that was something I read later. I wasn't aware of that while I was playing that hand. So you won the hand, but it kind of surprised you because you were a professional poker player. And even against Garrett, it felt like some of your like faculties were just like missing. And this didn't happen to you against other players. It was like very specific to that opponent. Um. Well, it did. It did sometimes, but <laughs> probably not too often. But, you know, that's sort of like like the fog, right? They call it in poker. I definitely had that during that hand. And as a data scientist who also writes a lot about psychology and games, do you think the goal should be to never get fog or lizard brain or to somehow have good enough defaults that you play OK even when you're in it? I think it's a mix of both. Like, I think you want to reduce it, get it less often. For all of these sorts of things, I think it's really hard to get it down to like 0%. But if you can take it from 10% to 5%, that's really good. And like you said, uh, there's also something to just having the fundamentals so drilled in that even when you're not completely focused in and in the state of mind you want to be in, like you're at least able to play some sort of reasonable strategy where you're not completely like flying off the handle and just making outrageous blunders. You're able to execute some defaults, even if you're foggy and lizard out. So you won this hand against Garrett, and then additionally, apparently, you got a really important life tip. Oh yeah, so this is the the most memorable thing is during this session, he or like he ordered food at the table, and he ordered tuna salad with like tomatoes and jalapenos and cilantro, but but no mayo. And I like I actually still I still make tuna salad that way. So that was probably my biggest takeaway from from this session. That is brilliant. I'm definitely a mayo hater, except with French fries. Like if I'm going to have mayo, I want it just with something else that's really unhealthy. But It's like a good quick weeknight meal. It, make, it makes it healthier. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of like the really like goopy, like mayoed out, like kind of tuna salad. 
you know, I, I like I season it up with a bunch of lime juice, like sort of like a ceviche kind of thing. Okay, so a jalapeno, cilantro, um, tuna, a little bit of lime. Yeah, you can if you've got like a nice ripe avocado, you can like dice that up and put that in there. Avocado, yes, love that. Good fat in there. That reminds me of one of my um, favorite quotes from your articles. Asking how many pawns a queen is worth is like asking how many avocados it takes to make an airplane. I had to get that quote in. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that was in there. Yeah, this is one of my like big crusades is like, I don't think so. I, I don't know. You know, obviously, this is a poker podcast. There's this cent upon score we use in chess and like it's useful, but I don't think it actually makes sense. I think we're just used to it. I do think there, there's a bit of a poker connection there in chess and poker. Obviously, we use software to study, right? Working on chess and I'm doing I'm getting back into poker just a little bit right now. But something that's really interesting to me about both is we use this software but I kind of found the player, you know, even really strong players who really rely on this software don't always exactly know how it's working under the hood. So it's like you see like, you know, people who are really, really sophisticated in the strategy of the game being very trusting in like the numbers or the outputs this software is spitting out. And I don't know, you know, they don't always mean exactly what people think they mean. Right. And incent upon means that you're basically judging the value of a position in terms of how many pawns you're up. But sometimes you're not up any pawns. Your position is just good. And the AI assigns you a number of pawns that that would normally be worth on average. And uh, that's a type of valuation metric that was very standard until recently, right? Now there are alternatives. Yeah, it's still by far the most standard thing. But yeah, like you said, the, the point of the avocados and airplane quote is it's like it's scaled according to one equals one pawn. So then you can be plus five, which is like in chess, a rook is worth five points. But but basically plus five to, to say that you have an advantage that's like being up five pawns doesn't actually make a ton of sense because you, you'd almost never be up five pawns. So basically it's it's scaled to pawns, but not everything in chess can really be converted to pawns. And there's also other weird stuff. Like every time a new version of the engine comes out, like the numbers tend to change drastically. So I think actually like like one of the newer ones that from a fundamental sense makes more sense is alpha zero, like the neural network one. It's like a negative one to one scale. Negative one would be sure win for black, plus one sure win for white, zero, either equal, you know, a draw or like equal chances for both sides. So I think for poker players that are accustomed to thinking in EV, like that type of scale would make a lot of sense. But since in the chess world, we've been using this cent upon scale for years and years and everyone's used to it, that hasn't really caught on. Yeah. As a poker player, I also was really seduced by that. I thought it was, it was brilliant and really fascinating, like reading Game Changer and seeing those types of evaluations was really cool. But how many avocados would fit in an airplane? I have no idea. You know, I've even seen, like, I think for like some like hedge funds and stuff, they like ask questions like this to see if you can, like if you're good at estimating, but I would be terrible at that. I have no idea. <laughs> what do you think? Over 20,000? Hmm. Well, it's cubic, right? So it should, you know, it's like some number cubed. I think it, I think over 20,000. Yeah. 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 It's got to be over 20,000. I was thinking like, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how big the airplane is, like a private plane or like, you know, a commercial Boeing. I was thinking more like, like 100,000. You know, it's actually funny that you mentioned those hedge fund questions, because I think the famous iconic one that I think even my mom told me when I was a kid, so it must have dated way back was the one about piano tuners in Chicago. I, I think I probably heard that one. 
I think that's like the ultimate iconic one, especially when it was like a little bit more of like a cultural icon to have like a piano in your house as like a status symbol. Mm. They're really measuring for a very specific type of intelligence and might lead to like less diversity of thought. So they're, I've heard that they're a little bit out of favor in like some companies now. You know, oddly, because it seems so random, but but a fairly specific type of skill that you could probably train for. I'd imagine there's sort of some tricks you could use to get better at doing those type of like very random estimation tasks, which might, I mean, arguably might be useful things to learn for kind of decision making in general. I'd imagine it's something you could improve at if you worked on. I agree. And it's almost like I feel like lot and things could be like super valuable in those contexts, like just knowing what other people think more than knowing what the reality is. Because, mm -hmm. you know, people are like such an important dynamic of, of almost everything except, except in some ways chess. And chess, you can just kind of like look for the best moves and the right answers. But when it comes to like business or poker, it's like what other people are doing is like and what other people think is so immensely important. I see that so much in, in the chess work because I think like chess is so unusual in that regard in that you just show up and play this game where everyone knows the rules and it, you know, they stay the same and you just all play the same game that everyone agreed to. And if you're the best at it, you get to win. And it's, I mean, it's so different than almost every other part of life. I think there's a lot of chess players that think um, they should kind of be able to show up and be good at chess and like be rewarded for, for that in a financial sense. But of course, if you're trying to do a stream or a podcast or a YouTube channel or or whatever, it's, I mean, in most things, it's more about like, are you engaging and do people like you and can you convince people and communicate and, and all this sort of stuff? Chess is really the outlier there of where you just get to, to play this game. And if you can win at it, you sort of get to come out on top. Yeah, you mentioned that in a recent blog post about the idea of like kind environments for learning versus wicked environments for learning, which was a concept I first read about in the, this book Range by David Epstein. Can you explain what that all means? Yeah, so the idea is, in a kind environment, basically, uh, your experience feeds into learning in a fairly straightforward way. So chess is often used in as an example. Um, the rules are like established and well known. They don't change. Um, the same patterns repeat. So basically, if you do something and get a certain result, you can conclude pretty reliably that that's a good thing you should keep doing. And then in, in a, a wicked learning environment is the opposite. It's the rules are unknown or unclear or misleading or they change. So this sort of feedback loop from your experience and what you're doing to how you should adjust is not as reliable. So, you know, in that sense, like poker would be a more wicked learning environment because, because there's such a bigger random element. You know, obviously we all know in poker, you can play your hand well and get a bad result. You can play poorly and get a good result. So if you're kind of drawing conclusions one hand at a time, you can be very misled. And then even more so than poker, a lot of real life situations like running a business, being in a relationship, like are, are even more wicked in the sense that sort of the inputs and outputs are not connected in such a clear way. That was the basic idea of the post. But then sort of the, the puzzle to me is in that sense, chess should be easier to learn than most things. But it's actually really hard, like, like almost everyone who tries to get better at chess finds it quite hard. So there sort of has to be something else going on as well. Yeah, you actually uh, quoted a tweet from elite poker player Ike Haxton, who's studying chess more and more these days. And um, he said, good moves result in good outcomes, but good thoughts don't always result in good outcomes in chess. And 
I thought that was a fascinating way to think about it. I'm not sure I agree, but I, I guess you have to parse out what exactly he means by good thoughts. Yeah, no, I thought that was a really smart observation. I mean, obviously, it's like, no, no surprise that like, I, I could be like, quite insightful about this type of stuff. And that's, that's actually a super fun part of chess right now is people like Ike Haxton, and like Dan Smith and other really, really accomplished poker players are getting into chess, you know, and in like engaging with chess Twitter, which is super fun. I think his point, not necessarily that good thoughts don't lead to good outcomes, but sort of the process for figuring out the thoughts that make you better at chess and how to cultivate them is tricky. Like, you know, when you look at a chess position, what do you even think about? Sounds like a stupidly obvious question, but I don't know that it's that it's really that clear. I think if you ask most, I don't know if most chess players could even sort of answer that right off the bat. What do I even think about? I would just look at all the aggressive moves in the position. <laughs> and then like, once those are ruled out as bad moves, look for other types of moves. I mean, that, like basically, that's, that's yeah. my, and that's something I notice a lot of players who aren't a master level or expert level don't do so they just like you know they don't look at all the captures and checks but of course beyond that like just moves that like do something aggressive do something active they just forget to look at them or something yeah, so in that sense it's kind of stylistic because you're you're like an aggressively minded player right i mean something i like to do as a coach is just like ask players to to go through their thought process out loud and i had one student who what i noticed was in every position, he immediately started calculating moves, like going down the forcing line. So, so mm -hmm. kind of like your your approach in that regard. But he wasn't kind of stepping back to think about what was going on in the position in a broader sense or what he was even trying to accomplish. So he would kind of go down a forcing line. But then if it wasn't leading to a forced win in the way he wanted to, he sort of didn't have a lot to fall back on to see the position in a different way. I do agree with that. And I do think that was one of my weaknesses um, for sure. Although I will say one thing that I think is really important for good calculation is looking at all the different options and all the different aggressive options. And that's something I do think I was pretty good at. So it wasn't like I would get into like the tunnel vision of looking at one move and trying to force it. I do think I looked at a, a variety of moves and that's why I, I love the title of your blog, um, Zug, your newsletter, that is. It's also on your blog. You guys should sub to it. My next book is called Thinking Sideways, and it's all about how people don't really do that enough in chess. Um, maybe not in poker either, but certainly not in life, which is they just kind of fixate on one idea and just like want to go with it rather than just like looking around at all the different possibilities, which tends to be so much more valuable since if you are looking at like one or two options, the chances of you miscalculating on like move five or six they just go up with every move. Like the chance that you miss something or your analysis is totally irrelevant continues to grow. No, I love this idea because for me, one of the most helpful suggestions to improve as a calculator was uh, slow down, right? Because especially if you're a more intuitive player, you know, you start to get some ability with calculation. It's easy to just shoot down in a straight line, the first, the first line you see. But like you said, the most common mistakes in calculation are on move one. Like something that happens all the time is you just missed a candidate move. There's also the famous saying, long variation, wrong variation, right? So if you're spending all your time trying to figure out something on move eight of your calculations, it's more likely that there might have been a better move on move one or two that you haven't even considered. Yeah. So forcing yourself to slow down can be really helpful. Man plans, God laughs. 
exactly. or, or, or something that happens often with, with people who don't value that enough because they're so obsessed with like the possibility of somebody check raising. I'm not sure that's a great analogy, but it's just an example of like, kind of like an obsession with the future as opposed to the present. I feel like this candidate move, questions, wishes, look, thinking sideways is actually like the very beginning of this process. And your new book, How to Evaluate Like a Grandmaster is like the end point. And I think that people often just focus on the middle part, like visualizing like a long variation. And it's really like this first step and this like final step, which I think are sometimes a little overlooked. And uh, your book that you co-authored with uh, Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein um, tries to get people more practice showing lots of examples in evaluation, just like getting to the end of the line and saying, is this good or is this bad? Tell us a little bit more about why you decided that that was a topic you wanted to kind of delve into and help your students and readers with. It was definitely inspired by computer chess in the sense that traditionally chess engines have had two modules, like one being calculation, which is basically crunching moves, just going through sequences of moves. Like I go there, they go there, I go, et cetera. But even for a computer that can see far more moves than us, usually it can't just grind every line to checkmate, right? Because if you're in an opening or a middle game, I mean, checkmate is a long way off. So that means calculation alone won't get you there. You At some point you have to stop. Whatever position you stop at, you have to say, who is this good for? Who Who has the better chances in this position and by how much? That's what evaluation is. And it's really the other side of the coin to calculation. Like you really need both. And what we notice is there, there's quite a lot of chess books that explicitly work on calculation, very few that do evaluation. So we felt that was sort of a gap and that could be something that could be trained specifically and be really valuable. Magnus Carlsen said that he feels like that's his strength, evaluation and calculating short lines. Now, is there a corollary of this concept of evaluation from chess to poker? I think the closest corollary would maybe be like EV in poker in the sense of, of both evaluation in chess and EV and poker are both kind of asking how much is this is is this situation position how much is it worth so in that sense it's similar i feel like in chess you know i'm i'm really sort of defining evaluation in opposition to calculation in a way so i feel like it's not exactly a one to one because it it does seem like calculation is a much bigger part of the thought process in chess than in poker probably be, because in chess you have perfect information you can be very specific and precise with your calculation. Whereas in poker, there's so many unknowns. It just gets kind of fuzzy really fast. And you maybe have to think, and maybe the part of this is just, I'm more skilled at chess than poker. But I do feel that even for skilled poker players, you have to kind of think in a bigger picture. Like, whereas in chess, you can go, you know, okay, they go knight f6, I go bishop g5, just go down the line of specific moves. In poker, that would almost be like, you know, if you were going, okay, if the three of clubs comes, I'm going to do this. That level of specificity, if a flush completing card comes on the turn, you, you sort of have a rough plan in poker, right? But I feel like there's a specificity in the calculation in chess that's not exactly the same in your in a poker thought process during the hand. I think you're right. It's a lot of visualization in chess, which doesn't seem to have an exact corollary in poker, except maybe for some players, if they're literally like, imagining the grid in their head and then kind of like graying or greening out parts of it. But I don't think all poker players think like that. Somebody like Lucky Chewy might think a little bit about that like that. I think some players have a completely different like module. 
I have heard people talk about like the idea of like structuring your bet sizes to go like bet, bet, jam, whether it's geometric sizing, which means you do an equal proportion on each street to the pot, or if it's like some other type of sizing that you're trying to kind of like forecast for, like to do a 1.2x overbet on the turn and then have like less than pot size on the river, something like that. That could be considered a bit chess-like that you have to analyze those numbers, but in a way, that isn't as endless as it is in chess, right? You can kind of like work that out on some Excel spreadsheets and like have it memorized within like maybe a couple of weeks. Whereas in like chess, it's kind of like an endless process. Calculation, just just sort of crunching the moves is, is such a huge thing in chess. To me that like working out those bed sizes would maybe be almost more analogous to like working out an opening repertoire in chess and that you sort of have this like away from the table preparation and sort of game planning kind of making a blueprint of what you're going to do. You know, when I asked this question, I also thought about future game simulation. I felt like that could be a little bit like evaluation just because one hand of poker is so much shorter than a full game of chess. But in some type forms of poker, like when ICM is looming in a final table or final few tables or in a, uh, you know, in a bubble or definitely in a bounty tournament, especially when the bounties are worth a lot who you sit next to and how many chips you have in proportion to them is like really relevant and kind of changes like the value of your tournament. So I feel like that is a, it's a bit of a stretch because it's not like in, in chess, it's like the evaluation is literally whether you're going to win or lose. And this in this in poker is a little bit more like murky and probabilistic, but I think there's a little bit of a corollary there yeah. too. Well, I think in that sense, you have that kind of split into this thought, thought process where one half is looking ahead to a future scenario and the other half is yeah evaluating that scenario saying like what's this worth for me you're trying to aim towards maximizing the chances of the good scenarios yeah so it, it's not surprising that there's so many ways to answer the question in poker because i guess like value and expected value and evaluation is the, like almost the entire game of poker in some ways so like if you start at first the question seems hard but then you're like wait a second that is kind of poker how can you get the most value yeah, in a sense, it's like it's it's hard to answer because it's like it's too applicable. It's like the whole game. Yes, exactly. There's too many possible answers. Because then I was also thinking about like equity on the river, like the equity of your hand and how much you should bet. Like there's a lot of you know game theory about that. Like that that's another thing that you could think about. Like how much is my hand worth, and therefore how much should I sh I should bet? It's a very funny question that it stumped us both for a second because there are too many answers. Yeah. I love that you wrote, by the way, which I think really ties into this, is you wrote that weaker players often focus on factors that are true, but irrelevant. I would insert a caveat that I think you made clear and when this is in context, that that's like intermediate players. So players who aren't like brand new, but actually like know a decent amount about chess or poker. And then you write, in contrast, strong players often have a surprisingly simple thought process, but an uncanny knack for honing in on the most important factor in the position. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I mean, that's some, I think that applies to both poker and chess, maybe even more so poker. That's something I've noticed really strongly in poker is if you listen to someone talk about a hand history or how they played their hand. Yeah, I think you're spot on like intermediate players. So someone someone who knows a little bit is sort of in that zone of like knowing enough to be dangerous. You'll often hear someone describe this guy, um, you know, pre-flop, he was ordering his like a pizza and the way he turned to like grab that slice, like I don't think he was that interested in the hand. It turns out that was like the reason like 
they bluffed off like 400 bid blinds or something. And you're like, okay, like that, that observation might be legit, but like, should that have been the deciding factor to change your whole strategy? And it, it seems like very often people know enough to, to pick out one little detail that's like, they're not wrong about the detail, but by making their whole story about that, it really implies that like, if not for that detail, everything else would have come out in the wash. Like it's a 50-50 decision, except for this one thing I'm focused on. And if you kind of push on that, it's like, well, was it a 50-50 decision? Or maybe there was other stuff going on that this decision was not even close in some other way for a reason you're not even talking about. I think blockers get a lot of flack and, you know, no limit hold them in, in particular for being an example of that, for something that people obsess over to justify decisions that if they're looking at the full picture, they wouldn't make. Uh, but, you know, th that's the thing about blockers. They can be incredibly important, even for like a beginner slash intermediate player, or they could be like really granular, like the, the stuff that only like a solver would understand why you would, you know, choose the, the three of spades and the three of clubs over like the heart and the spade as a bluff. It really depends a lot on the situation. I think one of the problems that poker has, which is better in chess, is the pedagogy is really advanced. It really seems like you, you skip very, very quickly from like the rules and stuff to stuff that's like really, really granular and hard to apply if you were um, a beginner or intermediate player. It's funny because we mentioned Ike Haxton earlier and I remember he wrote, this is ages ago, this must've been like 10 years ago, I think I, I saw some article that he wrote, maybe it was for a card player about blockers and it was so elegant and simple. And it was just about how even for like pretty early players or newish players, blockers can be really important if it's a matter of bluff catching with like top pair, right? Because they just don't have the good top pairs and sets or two pairs as often. I just feel like that kind of stuff is like a little bit missing in poker. And I, I, I know the reason. I think the reason is that kids can't play poker. So education, actual like educational research is not, there's no investment in it. It's just about people trying to, you know, make a living from poker and then trying to get money from people who are making a living from poker. And those are the people who can afford the more sophisticated tools. And then some amateurs who can afford it will also buy them. I do agree with you because I've noticed, you know, if I have a friend who's just getting, you know, like, let's say like an adult, you know, like a smart person who's just getting started on chess is like, what books should I start with? Like, yeah, I have good recommendations for them. If people, if, if I have the same friend who's just getting started in poker, which, which do both happen from time to time, like, I never know what to tell them. So I'm like, what is the resource in poker that, you know, is accurate, up to date, will give you the fundamentals, but will be accessible for a beginning player. And I always kind of struggle to find those type of resources in poker. I think a book is a tough format for poker, like chess and literature is like a match made in heaven. It's like, this is one of the reasons so many of us nerds fall in love with chess. Cause it's like not only the game, but it's also just like the books. Chess has more of a book culture for sure. I think poker players do tend to be a little bit more secretive, you know, because you are playing for money. For many people, it's their livelihood. So I think there's more of a sense in poker of like, mm -hmm. if you know something, maybe you're a little bit cagey about like sharing it with other people. That's interesting, especially like the more human elements that we're talking about, psychological and and not the, uh, the raw calculation that people, if they have enough money, they have access to all of those solvers. Now you have a blog post actually that's called Stop Buying Chess Books. I wrote that one just before my book came out, which was like not deliberate. Like I had, I had finished the post and I was like, oh shit, this was like 
probably not the smartest one to do before my book came out, but I was like, well, it's already done. I don't have anything else to post this week. There's a learning research. I'm blanking on his name, but um, he talks about this trap in learning to play versus learning about. And I think the trap with owning too many books and chess in particular is you end up learning about chess, which is not really the same thing as learning to play chess well. So especially for a lot of adults, you know, who watch the Queen's Gambit or whatever and want to get into the into chess as like this iconic game with like a rich history and like you're in wood paneled rooms and stuff. It's like I think they kind of expect it's going to be this philosophical activity with like a lot of like deep, complicated ideas and stuff, which I mean, those do exist. That's part of it. It's not most of like the competitive side of chess, like actually winning chess games against people is more about you get your pieces out. You don't let your opponent take your pieces. You take their pieces. You know, you're you're kind of opportunistic and you look for tactics. So it's like the things that really move the needle in a competitive sense are like, they're not that like deep philosophically. It's more being incredibly focused and being like precise analytically. So if your goal is just to win as many games as possible, like you don't need a lot of complicated ideas. You need to train and practice your ability to apply those skills. I think a lot of people maybe are are kind of surprised by that or they not, they don't think that that's what chess is going to be about. Do you think that's true in poker too, that there's like a that simplicity? I think you said that you did think that was true in poker too, but can you uh, kind of expand on how that would be true in poker? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I've been so out of poker for a while. I'm like just getting back into it now and it's changed so much. I mean, I do think like they both have the thing of ju- just like experience and playing is such a huge part of it. I always find with poker... Apart from studying the theory, I think you just have to play a lot so you can kind of be focused and relaxed in the game. And sometimes for me, it just feels like I need to play a certain amount amount to get into shape and then things start working. And like, in some ways, I can't even say what I'm doing differently. It's just like, I have to play enough to be able to sort of feel the game. If anything, poker is like a little bit more mysterious and sort of harder to wrap your mind around than chess, just in that, that it's probabilistic. You know, we're in, we're in chess. The good mood is, is hard to find, but like it is the good move in that position once you know it. Where, you know, when poker with like mixed strategies and sort of balancing all these different hands, you kind of have to like really inhabit this space that's it's not black and white. It's it's probabilistic and you're kind of playing all the hands at the same time. And in, in that way, I think poker, it's like a weirder headspace than than chess to be really good at it. Yeah, it's like more complicated, but less difficult. What do you mean by that? That's interesting. Of all the mixed strategies in No Limit Hold'em, all the different bet sizes, there's so much that you kind of have to think about to wrap your head around the game. But then at the same time, because you don't have these like long calculation trees and because the games um, so, so many times you fold and you're not in a hand, it doesn't require quite as much attention and focus as chess does, right. which I think is why chess is so difficult. It just really hurts your brain to focus and concentrate for so long. Yeah. Towards the second half of my poker career, I was mostly playing PLO. Like, I think you've had, like, Sviddler on the podcast. Like, I know Grischuk, another, like, famous grandmaster, is a PLO player. I think that surprises people sometimes because, right, PLO is, like, considered pretty gambly and, like, chess players you would think are kind of nitty, right? So, So maybe people are surprised that that chess players would gravitate towards PLO. But I think it's because there's more information, meaning like in chess, there's this position. So they're like, 
there's a lot on the board to sink your teeth into. If you want to think about your decision, there's always, there's so much information in the position that you can examine. Whereas in no limit, you know, you only have your two hole cards in the board. So like when I play no limit, I feel like there's not as much information as I want. And I'm just like, well, um, should I bluff my stack with air this hand or next hand? Like, how do I even decide? I know that's not how really expert no limit players do see a lot of detail, like behind those few number of cards. But there's a sense in which you're sort of floating around without without as much information as you want. In PLO, it, just those extra cards, you've got a little bit more information that you can sort of anchor to to make a decision instead of just being sort of floating around and, and, and making a lot of decisions based on, you know, perhaps reads and psychology. I think you're right. And I don't think it's surprising at all that chess players gravitate to PLO because I think that that extra math and information, it's a really good explanation. I think that the beauty of No Live and Hold'em is that, especially in the live arena, it does kind of privilege very various types of brains, like people who are more calculating and people who are just a little bit better than the next guy or gal at figuring out if their opponent has top pair or an over pair when they jam the river. <laughs> That's just like worth so much in No Live and Hold'em that if you do have that like kind of instinct a little bit more than the next guy, you can kind of make up for being like not quite as sharp on like certain ranges. To your point about blockers, right, that can be that can be important, but it can also be a trap, right? Because again, some players, if you're thinking about river bluff catch scenario, yeah, like you should look at your blockers. That's the best information you have. But, you know, if your opponent is like an amateur that is like already like high-fiving their friends, like, you know, maybe they have a really good hand and your blockers are not that relevant. As you pointed out, just kind of extracting what's the most important thing to make a decision based on is so key. Is this spot under bluff, over bluff? Kevin Ravenshaw actually had a very elegant way to put it. It really reminded me a lot of what you're saying that top players have a simpler kind of way to make decisions, especially over the board. And that sometimes there's just like a lot of noise in intermediate players' thought processes that need to be like eliminated. And it's kind of like that winnowing down effect. Now to wrap up the show, I, I have to ask about this hand where you misread your fours. No, you misread your fours and they were actually I threes. thought I had fours, but it's actually threes. <laughs> Coincidentally, the hand I really had is the one that has not been claimed on the grid yet. So you joined uh, some great players in the grid who have also misread their hand, like Nick Schulman and uh, uh, Talio Poker. Yeah, that Nick Schulman episode is one of my favorites. That one was great. I know. And it's so eerie that that became like the hand of... Yeah, exactly. Jack four. It's got to be like the most watched time of all time by now, right? It's got to be. Because I, I don't, I can't imagine a... Maybe, oh, wait, there's that Miss Finland hand with the ace two versus Ronnie six six or seven years ago. Maybe that one was, was a contender as well. But this Jack four has got to be one of the most watched poker hands of all time. Just because it's such a hot topic to wrap up. Can you tell me as a data scientist... What are your pet peeves when it comes to people analyzing cheating scandals in either chess or poker? Okay, yeah, this is a great one. So one I would say is in data, the question is always compared to what? I mean, that's always really important, but especially when you're comparing unlikely scenarios. So one thing I see with the way people are analyzing this hand with Garrett and Robbie is, you know, analyzing some part of it and saying that would be really unlikely if you weren't cheating. From my perspective, it's also really unlikely if you were cheating. Like, you know, for example, returning the money after the hand, 
really, really weird, something you never really do in poker. But I don't I don't think cheating or not cheating makes a ton of sense. Like, like it's a weird action either way. At least from where I'm sitting, it's not obvious which way that pushes it. You always have to look at both sides. You can't just look at one side and say, this doesn't make sense, therefore it must be the other side. You have to make the comparison. Although I will say that with weirdnesses, it could be in some cases that like, like for instance, in the hand with your um, Michigan bar backroom, that people, especially people who've been cheated in the past, are just wanting to extricate themselves from any situation that seems weird. And that's not really a justification for false accusations or accusations with not enough evidence, but I do think it could be a potential explanation for it. If enough weird things are going on, it means that like where there's smoke, there's some kind of fire. And even if you're wrong about the type of fire, it's like, you just want to get the hell out of there. And I think that's actually smart for a lot of people. I mean, certainly women are very accustomed to thinking that way. Yeah, I think that does that does make sense. Another one, this is more so in the, the chess with the Hans Niemann scandal, but with data analysis, Basically, if you're looking to get a certain answer and you're willing to try an infinite number of ways of analyzing the data, eventually you'll get the answer you want, but it won't prove anything. And I think you really see this with Hans in that there's lots of people all over the world doing their own sort of like sleuthing to pretend Hans cheated or not, you know, but basically trying different things like slicing the data in every way. And so, of course, like, you will find things that look odd. But if you tried so many things, it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Just the nature of reality is it's sort of clumpy and streaky. There's a famous XKCD comic of where they do the same test on 20 different colors of M&Ms and find a result with like p-value equals 5% with one of them. The point is like, if you try something 20 times, you might cross this 5% threshold once, but your takeaway shouldn't be like green M&Ms cause cancer or whatever. It should be, we tried some weird thing 20 times and you would expect to get this anomalous result occasionally. That's so funny because I was going to say like purple M&Ms make me happy. Like something very innocuous and you're like green M&Ms cause cancer. Is that like, is it, they don't even have purple M&Ms, I don't think. So I'm just like making that up. I see what you mean. And I think that The takeaway for people who aren't data scientists, I think in both of these cases, one possible takeaway is that it's really good not to get attached to a result very early on. I mean, of course, if you're like a friend of Magnus or a friend of Hans, like you can't help yourself, like you get a pass for having an attachment to a result. But for other people, I think it's really good not to get too attached to any result because then your tendency to abuse data, especially if you're not a data scientist, is going to be way higher. It's just going to go through the roof. And this kind of ties into like the way that we play games. If we want to fold the river because the money bubble is looming, we're going to figure out a way to show how that's the correct thing to do. If we want to sacrifice our night, we're going to like figure out how to justify it to ourselves. I think in a lot of ways, the goal is to like just want less, at least when you're trying to analyze a chess position or a poker position. Confirmation bias is definitely a huge part of this. Because like every time some new part of this drops and we get more information, What you should see is people updating their beliefs in like a rational fashion, right? But what you do see is mostly people doubling down on their beliefs even more. So, you know, the chess.com report drops or whatever, and all the people who who thought Hans cheated against Magnus 
interpreted it in some way where they're now they're even more convinced that he cheated. And all the people who thought he was innocent interpreted it a different way. And now they're they're even more convinced of the opposite thing. Right. Because they're like, oh, that's not that much, 100 games, because that's only like six hours. Whereas people on the other side are like 100 games and against these events and like these players, that's huge. So it's like, yeah, there's certainly two ways to interpret that indeed. I will say in the poker player side, not that I feel like poker Twitter is very encouraging lately. It's There's a lot of toxicity. It did seem like people were like almost obsessively updating their opinions. Like I saw people going like from like, 20 to 40 to 90 because there was so much kind of like new information kind of like coming out on that situation because poker is so intimately tied to probability i think like the poker community in general like people are more in into like bayesians or something they're they're probably more up on like the technical side of probability and they want to they want to kind of sh- show off their process by the way you have a five-month-old baby and i have a five-year-old and I, I mean, I'm teaching my son chess and poker. I saw you reading your um, child, Bayesian probability for babies. For babies, yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, like, probability is really hard to teach very young people, I think. And that's what's interesting, because in some ways, like chess, you know, you would think it's way more difficult. But because it's a, a rule set that is so abstract, you can teach extremely young people how to play chess three years or four years in some case. But to teach people the idea that like you're going to lose half the time and win half the time is really it's a lot trickier, I think. Well, not only for kids, for adults as well. That's something I've wondered about because I do think that's what makes poker so hard and unintuitive is even if you've been trained in the math of probability to really inhabit it on an intuitive level seems so hard. In that sense, it seems like easier for us to wrap our heads around chess but like the world is really more like poker. Like we definitely live in a probabilistic world. Are we just sort of equipped with chess brains or like, is there something cultural there? We're more comfortable with these kind of binary, yes, no, black, white kind of things. I guess if you're saying even for, for a young kid, poker is harder, maybe it is hardwired in some way, but it, it's odd that we seem to find it easier to understand the game that's like less like the world we really inhabit, if that makes sense. It is strange. But then on the other hand, like we only get one iteration. So because we're so visual, like we do, we do only see that one output. So I was explaining to my son that half the time people have girl babies and half the time they have boy babies. And he's like, oh, so if you have another kid, it's going to be a girl, right? And of of course, that's exactly like the way that people think about poker, right? That you should have this like kind of like this alternating fallacy. That's the gambler's fallacy, right? That like that things are supposed to even out. Exactly. It's really difficult to debunk. And then I did manage to convince him though, but then he told me what happens though, mommy, if all of the babies are boys and then there are no more children. That one also reminds me of, you know, this famous question of what is it? You have two kids and at least one is a girl. What's the chance that they're both girls? Do you know this one? Yeah. It's like a famous puzzle. It's like two thirds or something. It's something you wouldn't expect. To your point as well, like so broadly, the math of how probability works is pretty well established, but what probability actually means, like as poker players, we're so we're so used to doing the math that that we're used to it, but it's not actually that that clear what it always means. Well, in the sense of like, for example, one thing is it, it's sort of like based on comparable situations, but if you if you had the exact same situation before, you would get the same output. 
So you have to kind of have this sample of situations that are like it, but not exactly like it, but how much like it, you know, speaking of like Bayesian, there's these kind of two different interpretations. Bayesian is like, like basically a statement of your beliefs about a situation. And there's a different one called frequentist, which is like, what is the observed frequency that this has happened in comparable situations? Oh, why did you call your blog Zwischenzug? Well, the original tagline was thinking in between the moves. I changed that actually because I figured out that I had to use the word chess in the tagline to get Substack to rank me higher. Nice. But I do like that tagline. But the idea was that it would be like un a little unexpected, a little contrarian. So that's that's kind of one of the big ideas of the blog is to like question the conventional wisdom, trying to find different ways of looking at things. You know, in chess, we have we have a lot of tradition. We have some cliches, at least from where I'm sitting. We don't really know that much about what actually works for getting better at chess. Uh, so that that's where it's coming from. Just trying trying to think of different ways to look at things and challenge the conventional wisdom. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's a beautiful title. I love it. I love the words wish and zug. It means in between move for those of you who don't know chess. That means a move that uh, you insert into a seemingly forced line. We we're kind of talking about it earlier with thinking sideways, seeing option that nobody else saw. And uh, Nate Solon certainly does that. And he brings a very special pedigree to the grid as he's a chess master, a data scientist, and a former poker professional who's kind of getting back into the game. And it'll be exciting what we can uh, learn from you as you're always thinking deeply and originally about games and data science. So thank you so much for joining me on The Grid. All right, thanks so much, Jen. Really fun. At Nate Solon on Twitter. Again, his substack is wishingzugsubstack.com. And of course, you should order his book, Evaluate Like a Grandmaster. Thanks again for Pocket 3s, or it was a Pocket 4s. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, pocket three is in the end. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent You won't see me, see me stunting No, never, never stagger Believe it, I'm the real thing